Thank you, Malin. Thank you, Malin, for that beautiful music. Let's pray. Gracious God, we give you thanks for this day, and we give you thanks for this time of worship together, both for those in the room and those who are joining us online, God. Um, we pray that your Spirit's presence would be, no, may, be made known for us in this time. God, help us to take the lid off the box, as we heard Pastor Kathy say a moment ago, and to remember that your Spirit cannot be contained. In the name of your Son, we pray. Amen. This is a duck. It's not God. I know that's a controversial statement. This is a duck. This is not God. This week, the theme of our scripture deals with idolatry. And maybe when you hear the word idol or idolatry, you think of a small statue of an animal, maybe a golden calf. I don't have a golden calf. I have a ceramic duck. I have a ceramic duck because for the last week, uh, the duck has been the featured player in our games and rec room here at Vacation Bible School at AUMC, which I heard was everybody's favorite room, by the way. Um, <laughs> tremendous leader. Uh, it was me. So uh, we played a game called Find the Duck, and the rule of the game was find the duck. The duck hid underneath a recycle bin one day. The duck hid inside a tower of Jenga blocks another day. It's like hide-and-go-seek, except the kid is a ceramic duck and doesn't talk or move, right? It's perfect. Parents, I give this gift to you. Find the duck, your new favorite game at home. But you know, I'm not sure that idolatry has a whole lot to do with statuettes of animals. I don't think it has much to do with ceramic ducks at the end of the day. I think maybe it has more to do with children's crafts, from VBS. Now hear me out, hear me out. Um, parents, grandparents, aunts and uncles, friends of kids in the room. Uh, my daughter is five when she was a couple years younger and just learning how to draw. Um, you know that moment when kids are first learning how to really draw pictures, not just scribbles with the crayon, but really they, they are drawing pictures and they bring that first one to you and say, look at what I drew. And in your brain, you're thinking, what is that? And so you say the thing that you're supposed to say, wow, what am I looking at? That's so cool. Tell, can you describe it for me? Because you have no idea, right? I think sometimes, as we see in the scripture today, um, we can be a bit like Moses, and we ask God, we see God, and, and we say to God, God, can you tell me what I'm looking at? When I see you, can, can you describe it to me? That's what Moses does on Mount Sinai. We're going to see in our scripture today, coming from the book of Exodus, we're going to see two scenes of Moses' story, both on Mount Sinai in very different places of his life. If you've never read the book of Exodus, or you're unfamiliar with it. It's the story of the Israelites' liberation and exiting of Egypt. And Moses is the leader who is uh, called and equipped by God to lead the Israelites into this journeying through the wilderness, eventually making their way to the promised land. Exodus has a lot of those stories that we know from just pop culture references. If you've ever seen the Ten Commandments um, with uh, Charlton Heston, or if you've seen Mel Brooks's version, or if you don't know either of those references, uh, you still likely know stories of the Red Sea. Or as we'll read today, The Golden Calf. It's a really, really interesting, fascinating book. 
We're continuing in our series this morning called Encountering the Spirit. Because at Mount Sinai, in both these scenes, uh, Moses encounters the Spirit of God, uh, sometimes uh, shown to us in the form of fire, sometimes shown to us in the form of air or clouds. But the Spirit is this ethereal, uncontainable thing, person, God in the Old Testament. And so we're continuing this series of studying Old Testament stories where we encounter the Spirit. Today we turn our attention to Moses and to Mount Sinai. Let's read together beginning in chapter 3, verse 13. So this is early on in the Exodus story. Moses has come to this burning bush, and it's a bush that's on fire, kids, but it's not burning up. How wild is that? Moses knows something weird is happening here. And God tells Moses the plan to liberate and help the Israelites to exit Egypt. And Moses says at first, I think you've got the wrong guy. I don't speak that well in public. I have something of a stutter. I'm not the most confident person. You probably want someone better than me. And God says, no, I want you. And then Moses shifts his attention to God and says, okay, God, but who are you? And that's where we pick up. In verse 13, it says this, but Moses said to God, if I come to the Israelites and say to them, the God of your ancestors has sent me to you, and they ask me, what is God's name? Natural question, right? But naming is important in the Old Testament. What is God's name? What shall I say to them, says Moses? So God said to Moses, I am who I am. To which Moses said, that's no help at all. Thank you so much, God, for that incredibly dense and convoluted name. I am who I am. And God said further, thus you shall say to the Israelites, I am has sent me to you. Still no help. God also said to Moses, thus you shall say to the Israelites, the Lord, Yahweh, the Lord, the God of your ancestors, the God of Abraham, the God of Isaac, the God of Jacob has sent me to you. This is my name forever, says God, and this my title for all generations. So God offers three names to Moses when pressed. The first one, I am who I am. It is designed to be cryptic and ambiguous, like a two-and-a-half-year-old's first drawing they show you, right? Now, what am I looking at? The Hebrew language even in that name, it, it, it's beyond time. It says, I am who I am, or even I will be what I will be. This name isn't even bound to time. That's how out there it is. We can understand Moses' confusion. Then the name that God gives of the Lord, that's that Yahweh title that we talked about a couple of weeks, that uh, the, the concept was that it was almost the rhythmic breathing sounds in the language of Hebrew for God to adapt, adopt a name that is simply to breathe, right? Maybe a little bit more defined, but not by much. Right? Still in the air, still ethereal. But then God says this, I am the God of your ancestors, before God mentions Abraham or Isaac or Jacob, God simply leaves it at the God of your ancestors. And in the Jewish tradition, uh, that second creation story we talked about a couple of weeks ago where the name Yahweh is first used, it's this tradition of coming from the same people, that all the people throughout the world, there was this Jewish tradition and concept that we all shared the same root family, right? Uh, ultimately, the, the family tree of life in the world all had the same root 
And so for God to say, I'm the God of your ancestors is like this cosmically large, I am the God of everybody, everybody, everybody. Abraham, yeah, but more than Abraham, everybody, the God of your ancestors, your ancestors. But then God drills down a little bit deeper and says, not just of your ancestors, but of Abraham and of Isaac and of Jacob. And if those names don't mean much to you, they would have meant everything to the Israelites who would hear Moses say these words, because what God is doing is drawing that love closer and closer and closer to the Israelites living in those days. Jacob would have been only a couple of generations removed from the Israelites living in bondage in Egypt. So for God to say, I'm the God of your ancestors and the God of Abraham and the God of Isaac and the God of Jacob, and I've come for you. Do you see the love being drilled deeper and deeper until finally it hits home? What do these names about God mean for us? My friends, I believe that in our effort to define God, and it's human nature to try to define God because God is, can be so ambiguous, so mysterious. In our effort to define God, we are pointed first to God's deep love for all people and God's unique love for you. It's one thing to say that God loves all, and all means all, and we need to claim that theology. But it means something else to say God uniquely loves you as you are uniquely made. Both truths are important to hold together, especially in a month like we're in right now. You know, the month of pride is a, is a month where we celebrate and uplift the LGBTQIA plus community. And I know folks in that community who will crack jokes about, yeah, I can't keep up with all the acronyms anymore. How many letters are in it? And, and, and they'll laugh and I'll laugh. But we also know that each one of those letters is important because every letter in that acronym, every letter represents a story a myriad of stories. It represents people. It re represents people who are able to claim their uniqueness and their being loved by God uniquely in a way that they haven't been able to for so long. And so this month is as good a month as any to remember and call back to when God is pressed for a name, God is pressed for a definition, God says, I am here for all of you, but I am here for you, and I am here for you, and I'm here for you as uniquely and as wonderfully made as you are. Amen? And we're just getting started, friends. Do you see how good Exodus is? The Old Testament is fun. So we zip forward to chapter 24, and I'm skipping a lot, right? I'm skipping the plagues. I'm skipping the Red Sea. I'm skipping all the fun stuff. Char sorry, Charlton Heston. We're skipping basically most of your movie. We get to verse 15 in chapter 24, and it says then this, then Moses went up on the mountain, that same mountain that Moses was on when greeted by God's presence and when God offered God's name, the same mountain. And it says this cloud covered the mountain, and the Spirit is frequently shown to us as clouds or as fire. And the glory of the Lord settled on the mountain, or Mount Sinai, it says, and the cloud covered it for six days. And on the seventh day, God called to Moses out of the cloud. And now the appearance of the glory of the Lord was like a devouring fire, heavy metal God, on the top of the mountain, in the sight of the people of Israel. Moses entered the cloud. That must have been a fun few steps. And went up on the mountain. It says Moses was on the mountain for 40 days and 40 nights. 
Now, what you may remember from Moses' time up there, the thing that pop culture teaches us is, is that's where Moses received the what? The Ten Commandments, those stone tablets. And that's where you remember the Mel Brooks rendition, if you remember Mel Brooks's movie, right? And he drops one, whoop, there's ten, right? And uh, it's not just the Ten Commandments. In fact, the Ten Commandments don't show up until the very last few verses of the many chapters that Moses spends with God in that cloud. Instead, what Moses is doing, what God is doing with Moses when he's up in that cloud for 40 days and 40 nights, is God is showing Moses the blueprints, so to speak, of this thing called a tabernacle. Tabernacle is like a tent of worship that would go with the Israelites as they entered into their 40-year journey through the wilderness. And the purpose of the tabernacle was not to say that, that the tabernacle was where God was because God made clear that God was far ahead of them making way to the promised land in advance. But rather the tabernacle would be this place where the covenant, the stone tablets, the Ten Commandments were housed. And these commandments were not just rules and regulations. No, they, they were meant to be something of a covenant that helped the Israelites remember how to stay in relationship with God. That's ultimately the purpose of the commandments was to help them remember their relationship with God. So the, the tabernacle, this tent, is that relationship on the move with them through this long journey in the wilderness. Now, while this is going on, while God is giving blueprints for this tent, a similar thing is happening down below with Aaron, Moses' brother, and the people. They're about to fashion something that feels like God on the move, but is such a lesser version than what God has proposed. So we pick up in chapter 32, beginning in verse 1. When the people saw that Moses delayed to come down from the mountain, literally he had been up there for exactly 40 days and 40 nights, and once the watches struck midnight, they're like, we don't know where he is, guess he's dead, right? Um, have you ever been with impatient people before? Um, they said, come, they said to Aaron, the people gathered around Aaron and said, come and make gods for us who shall go before us. As for this Moses, the man who brought us up out of the land of Egypt, oh, we don't know what has become of him, right? He was nice and everything, but it's time to cut bait. Aaron said to them, take off the gold rings that are on the ears of your wives, your sons, and your daughters, and bring them to me. So all the people took off the gold rings from their ears and brought them to Aaron. He took the gold from them and formed it into a mold and cast an image of a calf. And they said, these are your gods, O Israel, who brought you up out of the land of Egypt. Close enough. When Aaron saw this, he built an altar before it. And Aaron made a proclamation and said, tomorrow shall be a festival to the Lord. So while Moses is up on this mountain... And receiving these plans for this movable tent of worship, this place where their relationship with God, this reminder of relationship is housed, Aaron is down amongst the increasingly agitated people following orders to create a golden idol, right? And the two are meant to parallel each other as something of a this or that kind of scenario. Are you going to go in the direction of God or going to go in a different direction? And here's the thing, that the golden calf and the God of the tent are actually pretty similar in the things they seek to do, but the way they do these things are radically different. And it leads me to, believe, to, to question myself this week, and, and I wonder if this is a question that is relevant for you. Have I chosen a golden calf over God of the tent? Let me explain what I mean. See, golden calves and, and God of the tent, they both lead us, but the golden calf leads us back to the well-worn chains of our past. 
right? The golden calf was a reminder of where they had come from. Remember, remember those gods in Egypt? Yeah, let's go back to those. Whereas the God of the tent leads us forward to an unknown and yet freer future. Both the golden calf and the God of the tent address fear, but in very different ways. The golden calf is a short-term response born out of our fears. Have you ever known us as a people to adopt golden calf idols that are born from our fears? The things that we hold tightly that we think will make us safer in the midst of our fears? The God of the tent is a lifelong relationship who births in us hope in the midst of our fears. The golden calf and the God of the tent are both on the move. The thing is, the golden calf goes exactly where I want. Sit, stay, I'll find you later, right? The God of the tent goes ahead of me into the wild, wondrous places that I can't even imagine, and yet God's spirit is at work. The golden calf and the God of the tent both, at their core, deal with identity. Except, see, the golden calf, it is what I say it is. I get to impart my identity upon it whereas the God of the tent helps us to discover who we were made to be. So the two are similar, but they go about their work in very different ways. They lead us in very different ways. So I ask myself, I wonder if it's a question we could ask together, when do I choose a golden calf over the God of the tent? Now, the story doesn't actually start stop there. That's the, that's the end of the story um, for us today in Exodus, but I want to turn our attention at the end of this message towards the New Testament, because so much of the stories of Jesus and the early church hearken back to these Old Testament stories, especially the Exodus narrative that was so important and meaningful for the people of Israel. So what happens after this golden calf incident? Well, Moses restores his leadership. There's some fighting. Aaron becomes the chief priest, and his family becomes the priestly tribe. Talk about failing up, right? Aaron was the first guy to fail his way up into middle management. Um, the Israelites establish Israel in the promised land, and they build a temple. They shift from a tabernacle, this tent on the move, and instead they build a temple, which is stone and stoic. And inside the temple is housed the Ark of the Covenant, except now they're telling people this is truly where the Spirit of the Lord lives. And unless you make it here, you're not really good enough. But oh yeah, you're not allowed in unless we deem you good enough. And guess who's good enough? The priestly tribe. So by the time Jesus shows up, we begin to hear some echoes back to this Exodus story. John tells us that Jesus is God's attempt to make a tent with us. The language used in the gospel of John of Jesus's birth is God tabernacling amongst God's people. Jesus confronts the chief priests in Jerusalem. Of course, if Jesus is the new Moses seeking liberation for God's people, these chief priests sort of remind us of little brother Aaron, once again trying to reduce God to something that is easily defined by their own limitations. No longer are they simply worshiping an idol of a golden calf. Instead, somehow they have turned faith itself into something idolatrous, keeping people at arm's length from the presence of God. The, pent, or the, the temple curtain inside of the temple that was the barrier between everybody else and the Ark of the Covenant tears, rips open upon Christ's crucifixion as a sign that the covenant itself is being ripped open in the best way possible, open and available to all upon the earth. 
And that Pentecost experience, that birth of the early church found in Acts chapter 2, and the Holy Spirit rushes in like wind and fire and fills not just one or two, but the whole room gathered together with the gifts of the Spirit and the presence of God. It's as though God is bringing Mount Sinai to the people, inviting everyone into the cloud. These New Testament echoes of Moses' story are not anything explicitly new, though, right? They're simply expansions of the themes present millennia before, where before one man was called to lead a people into relationship with the living God. Now all people are called into the cloud of covenant to lay aside their idols in exchange for life with the living God. The story of Jesus and the birth of the early church could be read as parallels to Moses and Mount Sinai and the golden calf, except this time the idol was not a shiny little baby bull, but instead faith itself had been twisted into this idolatrous expression of exclusive religion, and then we get to see God's expansive response. My friends, the point today is this. Idolatry is not ultimately about golden statues. It's about restricting who God is, who God is for, and where God is leading us together. That is the point of idolatry. It has nothing to do with trinkets or, my friend, the duck. It has everything to do with trying to define God too finely and to impress my identity upon God's, to restrict who God is, who God is for, and where God is leading us together. So long as God is limited by our understanding, so long as God rejects the same people we reject, oh, doesn't that feel good? So long as God moves at our command, we hold in our hands an idol. But when we name God as beyond our limitations, when we love God's people as richly and deeply and uniquely as God does, when we are willing to be led to the wild and wondrous places where God's spirit is already well at work, we will have in our hearts the living God. Amen.